Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Let no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The passage we'll be reading today is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 20. You can use the Pew Bible in front of you, your own Bible, Bible app if you wish, or you can follow along on the screen. But let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that it comes through the cross. We thank you that it came through a tiny baby in a manger, born in humility, lived a humble and quiet life, a perfect and sinless life before you, and paid our sins on the cross. So we thank you that we can be here today and we can worship you because of what he did for us. Because of that gospel, we can stand. And no matter what the struggles of this life are, Father, you hold us up. You are our refuge, our place of hiding, our place of comfort and peace. And so we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Encourage our hearts through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him we all, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our vision and our mission as a church, stated vision and mission, is to be a Jesus-centered community that is fervently seeking the gospel redemption of our city. And that speaks to the centrality of Christ in everything. Our study today goes beyond the centrality of Christ and looks at the supremacy of Christ. That is to say that not only is Christ in all and at the center of everything, but that he is all. He's our comfort, our hope, our refuge is in this reality that Christ is all, as it says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. You may be wondering about my sermon title today, The Supremacy of Christ 
and the struggles of this life. Uh, when we use, oftentimes when we use theological terms like supremacy, side by side with an emotional, sort of an emotion evoking phrase uh, like the struggles of this life, it seems sort of incongruous, doesn't it? doesn't seem to fit together, doesn't seem to mesh. It's like saying thermodynamics and what it feels like to grow old in the same sentence, right? You kind of question how one can have anything to do with the other. Well, as it turns out, the second law of thermodynamics, that is the law of entropy, that is to say that everything in the physical universe is gradually declining from order to disorder, from wholeness to falling apart, Well, uh, those of us that are in that stage of life understand the direct connection between this lofty technical scientific term, thermodynamics, and the reality of what it feels like to grow old, don't we? The thing is, one has an undeniably direct connection with the other and an effect on the other. Our theology, that is, who God is, what God is, how, when, and where he operates has a direct and dynamic connection to this life that you and I live in this real world. You see, theology and real uh, everyday life are inexorably linked. And in reality, neither makes sense without the other. At this time of year, many people struggle with depression, a sense of hopelessness, that things are not right. They can never be right, or even nearly as good as they once were, or as good as they had hoped that life would be and should be. Hopelessness haunts many people at this time of year. That absent loved one, those painful memories that won't go away, that difficult and oftentimes hurtful relationship, that personal struggle with that one sin, that destructive habit that just never seems to go away. That hope for the life that a much younger you had dreamed about that has never, nor will ever, be a reality. And in that hopeless state, we will, because it is our nature to, we will seek refuge and yet never find it. We'll look towards other people around us, other relationships, better situations of our choosing. More things, more stuff, more money, which translates in our minds to more control over my little corner of the world and more power over my environment and my circumstances. Maybe a more manageable physical reality, that is, attempting to change my body in order to change how I feel. So I medicate my emotional reality by medicating my physical reality with oftentimes mind-altering, mood-altering, physiology-altering substances. And in reality, all I've done is nothing to change my source of emotional distress. I've only masked the pain. We have even at times convinced ourselves that if we could change our geographical location, that somehow that would change things for the better, only to find that no matter where you go, there you are. It's still you, with the same heart, the same beliefs in the lie that you seek, that what you seek, and as you seek it in this world, that what I need in this world 
can be found in the creation and not in the creator. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. What you place your trust in, what you hope in, that is where you take refuge in the storms of life, in the heat that bears down on us all in this fallen world, what you genuinely worship, if it is anything in this creation, it will be found wanting. It cannot satisfy. Now, you may not have thought of it this way before, but the Bible uh, talks about this concept in terms of seeking refuge. We're constantly seeking refuge every day, all day. When the heat of life, when life's struggles show up, every day we seek refuge. Some refuge seeking is normal and healthy, and some is not. When you're hungry, you eat food. That's how God designed us. But often when we're in a bad relationship, uh, bad relationship or circumstances are not the ones that we choose. We're lonely, we're anxious. We eat food or drink alcohol or take narcotics. That's not how God designed us. We're seeking refuge from the struggles of life in the wrong place. When we're physically injured, we cry out in pain, maybe with tears, maybe with anger. That's how God has made us. But often when we've been wronged or the circumstances of our day are not according to our wishes, we lash out in despair or anger mostly at others, sometimes even at God. And we seek to assuage those difficult situations by our anger or tears and by questioning why. That's not how God has designed us. Refuge-seeking is normal, but we often look in the wrong place. In the loneliness of our souls, we say to ourselves, like it says in Psalm 142, verse 4, look to the right, And see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Our functional theology takes over and we begin to doubt the goodness of God. Yet the Spirit of God, if we know him, if he dwells in us, reminds us, he responds to our cries for help. And if we'll listen, he will remind us and assure us of whom it is that we give service, to whom it is we belong. And then our hearts are encouraged, like Psalm 17, verses 6 to 7. says, I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Or Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Be merciful to me, Psalm 57, verse 1. O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Our refuge is only found in God himself. But what specifically about God makes him a safe and a genuine refuge from all of life's struggles? What is it about God? How can we know that he is our only refuge, only true refuge? And why is it that he is our refuge? How is it that Jesus Christ is able to be what I need him to be 
in the struggles of this life. What our passage today will help us to see is that Christ's supremacy is our refuge. Now, in the book of Ephesians, uh, the focus is on the church, which is the body of Christ. Now, in the book of Colossians, which we'll be looking at today, we see that Christ is the head of that body. Christ's supremacy is the foundational theological premise here in this book, and really it's the overall, uh, overarching theme of all of Scripture. Um, and in the New Testament in particular, there are three books that specifically point to Christ's supremacy. First is the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews uh, demonstrates Christ's supremacy over what has gone before in general terms. Christ is supreme over the angels, over Moses and the law, over the New Testament priest, uh, Old Testament priesthood, over the Old Covenant, over the Old Covenant sacrificial system, and over the works of the law. The second book, uh, the book of the Revelation, demonstrates Christ's supremacy over what is to come. Over all of redemptive, uh, redemptive history, for sure, but in particular, a particular view towards the future. And then the third book in the New Testament that talks about the significance of Christ's supremacy is Colossians. And the fact that it is a present reality. And it answers the question, really, so what? What does Christ's supremacy mean to my life here and now? In this passage, we're going to look today uh, in verses uh, 13 to 14. First, we'll see Christ's supremacy over sin. And then in 15 to 17, his supremacy over creation. And then in 18 through 20, his supremacy over the church. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, keep this in mind, somewhere between uh, A.D. 60 and 61 to the church at Colossae, it was in response to a report that Epaphras uh, gave to Paul when he was visiting him in in prison in Rome. Um, Remember that Paul has never met these people when he writes this book. Epaphras was an Ephesian convert during Paul's third missionary journey, and when Paul pastored that church for the three years he was there, sometime during that time uh, uh, in Ephesus, Epaphras got saved and subsequently took a journey, it's a hundred-mile journey, to uh, eastward towards the Lycus Valley, where uh, we're uh, from uh, Ephesus uh, to Colossae. And he shared Christ there, and he planted a church. And subsequently, uh, that church grew to actually a pretty large church and vibrant church by all indications. When Epaphras visited Paul in that prison in Rome, he brought back a report that this church was under attack doctrinally. And the Judaizers, the the mystics, uh, those purveyors of Jewish fables were trying to persuade them of a different gospel. Somewhat like the Galatians, if you recall, if you remember your studies in Galatians at all, reading in Galatians. Paul needed to reassure the Colossian believers of the one true gospel of Christ. Christ's supremacy because of that gospel. Because of the cross and the good news that it is finished. So the passage today looks at three aspects of Christ's supremacy that affect our daily lives. And they really do affect our daily lives. First, the supremacy of Christ over sin in verses 13 and 14. God has single-handedly, through the cross of Christ, accomplished the two most pivotally transformative aspects of our redemption. Let me say that again. Every word was chosen purposely. It's important you understand this. Through the cross of Christ, 
God has single-handedly accomplished two of the most pivotally transformative aspects of our redemption. They are pivotal and they are transformative. And, and thereby, they change us forever. One little verse has changed us forever. First, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And secondly, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2 talks about the people who walked in darkness who have seen a great light, which speaks of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says that we are God's own possession who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The great exchange took place on the cross when Christ gave himself up for us. We gain Christ's righteousness as he takes our sin. 2 Corinthians 5:21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gospel in a verse. And because of that exchange, we were taken out from under the rule of the enemy of our souls and we were transferred to the kingdom of God's dear son. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God's single-handed redemption in verse 14, here in Colossians 1, which resulted in the forgiveness of our sins, took place in that one act of Christ on the cross. Like Hebrews 1, uh, verse 3 says, uh, that Christ, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, chapter 10, rather, in verse 12, tells us, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's why God, that's why Christ could say in, uh, in John uh, chapter 19, verse 30, It's finished. It is finished. Tetelestai. The gospel in a word, by the way. There was no need for anyone or anything else other than, the, uh, uh, than Christ and his cross. Our sin could never outpace the grace of God. There is not enough sin in the world to overcome the grace of God in Christ. And more specifically, because I know we're all thinking it, even you cannot out-sin the grace of God. Unless you be mistaken, Paul answers the obvious question that you're asking yourself right now. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But make no mistake, your redemption is secure because of Christ's supremacy over sin. You do not have the power to undo that. What Christ has done through his cross is the final word on your sin. You no longer belong to the kingdom of darkness. You now belong to Christ and his kingdom of light. And because Jesus Christ has conquered your sin, because he rules over uh, the, the kingdom to which you now belong, you have hope. And it's hope that can't be taken away. You will always belong to him. And your sin has been dealt with once and for all in that cross. My hope has found a resting place not in device nor creed, I trust the ever-living one who his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. 
I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Why would I seek refuge in anything or anyone other than the one who washed away my sins? Christ's supremacy is our refuge. Secondly, in verses 15 to 17, we'll look at the supremacy of Christ over creation. Emmanuel, God with us, the image of the invisible God, verse 15, which is the whole, by, by itself, it is a, an entire series of sermons. But this invisible God is the creator of all things, we're told in verse 60. Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1, the first couple of verses, are, verses 2 and 3 also talks about that. The Father created the world through the Son, and by the word of Christ's power, it says, he himself upholds the universe. Paul here in Colossians chapter 1 starts with what cannot be seen. He talks about uh, Christ being the express image or likeness like a painting or a sculpture of this invisible God. He, he is the scene of what cannot be seen. He is the known of what cannot be known. And it's not just that God can't be seen. He can't be known. John 1, chapter, uh, John, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That is, Christ has illustrated the Father. That's how we can know him, is the illustration of the Father through the Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says that we can only contemplate the actual glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, um, verses 6 to 8 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness. Remember when he said, Let there be light? He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. All we need to know about God is in his son and seen and displayed and mirrored in his son. When we were outside of Christ, we were described uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 in this this way. Uh, In their case, that is in our case before Christ, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Christ, who is the image of God. I wonder, are you there today? Are you in a place where your mind is blinded to the gospel? Hebrews 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Christ is the very image of the God that cannot be seen. He's also described as the firstborn of all creation. Um, here it's not saying that Christ um, was created. That's not what this verse is talking about. The idea of the firstborn here points to his dominion over all creation. Um, and most likely, actually, grammatically, it's specifically talking about every creature, not just all of creation in general, but every creature in creation. 
even angels specifically, because that's what the context there in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is talking about. The firstborn son is typically the one who has a priority and, and special privileges. But I believe given the context, it's talking about uh, more about dominion rather than priority here. Christ created all things. It's not just that, he, uh, that all of creation was done by him, but that if not for him, there would be no creation at all. It's not just a matter of he's the one that did it and not the Father or the Spirit, but because God is sovereign, if not for Christ, there would be nothing. That's what's being said here. John 1 verses 1 to 3 talks about the fact uh, that nothing exists apart from, from God. From Christ, rather. Christ is supreme. He rules over all. He is sovereign over all and over every aspect of the created universe. He's supreme over what we can see and what we cannot see. This includes what cannot in relative uh, relative terms when we try to process it in our flawed and sinful minds what we can understand and what we can't understand Paul's also specifically pointing to the fact that like the Hebrews uh, uh, like the message the Hebrews in chapter 1 points out contrary to what a lot of uh, uh, long-standing Jewish fables which the Colossian believers were up against at that time in mystical philosophy uh, philosophical thought at that time Contrary to those thoughts, um, there are no creatures, no created things, not even angels that can boast supremacy. Everything was created through him. And that is, he is the specific agent of creation and all things were made by him. But also he's the specific reason for creation. All things were created by him and for him. He is the one that created it all, and he is the one that holds it all together. And despite everything that seems out of control in this created universe, Christ created it all. seems like a chaotic world that we live in these days, physically. He controls it all, though. He has a plan for it all. None of what you and I would call disasters have taken Christ by surprise. It's all his creation. It's all his world, a universe tainted and broken by the devastating effects of sin, but ultimately Christ oversees it all, and he controls it all. He is sovereign over it all. He is supreme over it all. And he operates, or it operates, according to his plan, not someone else's plan or by chaos. And ultimately it is to his glory. Why would I seek refuge in the storms of life and the struggles of life in anything or anyone other than the creator of the universe. And then thirdly, in verses 18 to 20, the supremacy of Christ over the church. The previous three verses tell us of Christ as the firstborn heir of all that is, all that belongs to God. It shows us God in the flesh. Christ is the image of God. Because he is God and, uh, and in fact, the creator of all, everything in heaven and earth is under Christ's supreme rule. 
Now in verses 18 to 20, Paul narrows the focus from Christ's supremacy over creation to a supremacy over the church, which is described as his body. Ephesians chapter 1, another verse, another passage you may want to look at at some point. Verses 22 and 23, it says, And God pleased, and sorry, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then later on in the same, uh, same book, chapter 2, verse 16, Jews and Gentiles become one body in Christ. The true church, the small c Catholic church or universal church, is the worldwide sum of all believers, all true believers in Christ. The use of this metaphor, the body, infers oneness from diversity. The body of Christ is made up of multiple millions of members, each unique, each special, each important, each vital to who each of you and I are as individuals and as a body, all united in Christ as our head by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 tells us. And this is not water baptism, but spiritual baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us and makes us the temple of God, brings us into the body of Christ. We're Christ's members, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 30 tells us, members of his body, his flesh, his bones. So what does this mean? So what? What's the big deal? Why would I care about any of this? It's just theology. And I can see your eyes glazing over. Like, okay, what am I in a theology class? Yes, you are. First, it means that we're inseparable from each other. We're inseparable from Christ. You are one among many members under one head, which is Christ. The head connects, directs, perceives, conceives, and executes and controls, ultimately, everything that the body does. Does it not? It does. The body is useless and pointless if it's, well, headless. Right? Headless horsemen notwithstanding. And totally incapable of being or doing anything without a head. That's what the gospel is all about. We are together, each of us, vital members of that body. We are of infinite value and worth to the Father. When he looks at us, he sees his Son, to whom we are connected as his body. Think about that for a moment. He doesn't see us separated from Christ. We are Christ's body. Catch the imagery. Think about this. The Father gazes with infinite love, passionate and pure admiration. And those words hardly even describe the reality. Total delight and ultimate pleasure in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, as Colossians 3.3 tells us, as his sons and his body are hidden with Christ in God. Let that sink in. Martin Luther put it this way. For nothing counts with God 
except his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is completely pure and holy before him. For where he is, there God looks and has his pleasure. Don't you see? Christ being our head and we his body, it's not about what we're now to do or, or, uh, or how we're to function or perform or act. It's about what we now are by his grace and his mercy. We're a, a wonderfully uh, diverse pack of misfits. It's what we are. And former enemies of God. And now so redeemed and accepted in the Beloved that as his body we are one in him, one with him. That's the gospel. We are forgiven, accepted, and infinitely valued because of Christ. As his body, we're given a purpose in life that transcends any other purpose or plan or reason to exist. To love, to hope, to plan, to go, to do, to be. Not something inferior, but now what our head, Christ, wants and where he directs. Christ is supreme over creation because he is the Lord God and over his church as the God-man. He is the beginning, verse 18 says, he is where everything starts for creation and for his church. As the God-man, as God's word tells us, he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. His death, his burial, and specifically here referenced in verse 18, his resurrection set him apart. The imagery of firstborn here points to supremacy, rulership, kingship in verse uh, 15. And it shows Christ to be, uh, as, as God himself, uh, the creator, the firstborn son that is the heir, the owner, and sovereign over all creation. Now in verse 18, Christ is shown to be the only unique risen son of God. That God-man is ruler over his church, the body of Christ. And his resurrection from the dead puts him in a unique position of preeminence. Secondly, this vital connection that we have with Christ as his body is ultimately not about us. It's about Christ. He's God. So he rules over all. He became the God-man became sin for us. He died in our place and he rose again to clearly display for all the world that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, that his death on the cross paid for sin. Once for all, Hebrews 9, 26. Christ became the only sacrifice for sin. It says he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate visual aid to illustrate the finality of Christ's sacrifice to wash away our sins and to stay the hand of God's wrath. Christ's resurrection didn't pay for our sins. It proved the efficacy of his blood to pay for our sins. Verse 20 points out that it was his blood, the blood of his cross by which he made peace with God for us. And by that, He reconciled all things to himself on that cross. He made us one in himself. 
Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there exists no solution for our sins. And verse 12 in that same chapter tells us that Christ entered the holy place one time, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption for us. This is the gospel, that Christ is supreme over sin, over his creation, and over his church. Christ's supremacy is our refuge. So what does that mean? (laughs) And why should Christ's supremacy give me any kind of hope? Why should this theological stuff give me any kind of hope? Why does Christ's supremacy over sin give me a place of refuge? What does the supremacy of Christ have to do with the struggles of this life? Well, because Christ rules over and reigns over all, because he's supreme over everything, even the worst that I can produce or that others can produce against me, our sin is no match for his grace. Have you ever felt so alone in your sinfulness? So empty of any hope of ever changing of ever being anything different than you are right now, that you felt like giving up. Have you felt ever felt like a slave to your sin? Like Jacob Marley's chains? Like you could never escape them? There's no way that God could ever forgive me. I say to myself, I've done the same thing over and over and over again, only to go back to God again and again, ask for his forgiveness for the same thing, for his grace and his mercy. I don't seem to ever change. I don't seem to ever be anything different than I've ever been the day before. Ever felt like that? Have you ever felt so much guilt and so much shame for your sinful heart and your attitudes and thoughts and words and deeds? that you feel completely separated from God at a given point in time, alone and in no position to ever approach God again. The thing is, you're not powerful enough. You're not as powerful as you think you are. Because Christ is supreme even over your sin, your sinful heart. His grace washes away your sins. You are as clean, as that proverbial phrase says, as the wind-driven snow. The scriptures tell us that as well. You could not, think about this for a moment, you could not be more pure as a child of God than you are right now. You could never love, be loved rather, more than you are right now by the Father. He could never love you more than he loves you now. Because you stand pure in Christ because of Christ. Certainly not because of anything that you and I have done. And when God looks at you, he sees his son. His beloved son in whom he is well pleased. He is our refuge from sin because he rules over sin. He's supreme over our sin. 
And because your sins have been forgiven, you can now extend that same grace and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you as well. Why should Christ's supremacy over creation give me hope? Why is his supremacy a refuge in a chaotic world? How can I justify in my own mind the devastation and the cruelty of the seemingly out-of-control forces of the natural creation? How can I be hopeful in the midst of a storm, whether it's a literal storm or even just the storms of life and stormy circumstances? How is Christ's supremacy over creation a place of refuge when I'm the victim of the broken sinfulness of this world around me. Because James chapter 1 tells me that God is a good father from whom only good gifts come. And because Psalm 1830 tells me, as for God, his way is perfect. And because Romans 828 tells me that everything that happens in my life is a part of God's perfectly orchestrated plan for my ultimate good and for his glory. And because Genesis 16 tells me that El Roi, the God who sees, never misses a thing that goes goes on in my life. He sees it all. He knows it all. He cares about it all. He has planned it all. And he loves me infinitely and would no sooner leave me and walk away from me than he would leave his own dear son because he sees his son when he looks at me. I'm joined joined in an unbreakable union with the one who is supreme over the universe. I'm his and he's mine. Christ's supremacy over creation is the only refuge in the storms of life on this planet. Why should Christ's supremacy over the church give me hope? Why is that a refuge for my soul? How does my union with the body of Christ become a place of peace and contentment and hopefulness? Why? Because as a part of the body of Christ, there is nothing that can separate me from my fellow believers. And most importantly, from my Savior. Nothing that I do or that anyone else can do can ever change what Christ has done. Why? Because ultimately God has taken care of my sin and now has given me purpose. Real purpose in a chaotic world that is beyond the ordinary purposes of man. We look around and we see randomness, but what God sees is order, his order in his plan. Why? Because I'm bound to Christ and what he is doing in this world. There could be no greater call in my life than to be his child, to be part of his body of which he is the head, and to be able to serve my fellow believers and my Savior and carry out his kingdom purposes. Why? Because there's nothing hopeless. Think about that for a moment. There's nothing hopeless in any part of God's activities in this world. God is never hopeless, is he? And I'm a vital part, eternally linked to all that God is and all that God is doing in all of his purposes through Christ and his gospel. Christ's supremacy gives me a settled hope that I'm God's and he's mine. And he's making all things beautiful in his time, scriptures tell us. And ultimately, Christ will rule and reign, and you and I with him.
if we could, if we could comprehend, even, even in its smallest measurement, smallest part, who it is that we want at the center of our lives and at the center of this church when we say we want to be a Jesus-centered community. We'd be like Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus. We'd be visibly and forever changed by seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we could even for a moment grasp the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of that king we heard about earlier. The sheer blinding glory of who Jesus Christ is, the Lord Jesus Christ. It would forever change us and give us an overwhelming and settled assurance that everything that we need, every desire of the heart, every need in our life, everything that we hope for in this life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Christ's supremacy is our refuge in the struggles of this life. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for your Son. We thank you for his cross. We thank you that we can be not only the beneficiaries of that cross through faith in Christ, but we become one with him, and we are tied to him and bound to him forever as your children, as heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And when you look at us, you see your son, that we're hidden with Christ in you. So we're so thankful, Father, today, for those of us that know you, Father, for the grace that's ours in Christ Jesus through the the cross of his gospel. Father, we pray for those who are here today that may not know him. We pray that they would understand their need for a Savior, that this is a world that is broken because of sin, and that we were conceived in sin and that our thoughts are sinful. We're sinners by nature and by choice, and we need a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. May those who have not turned to him turn to him today, Father. And for those of us that have turned to him, that know Christ as Savior, may we find our sufficiency in the supremacy of Christ. May we look for refuge in the storms of this life and the struggles of this life in our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.